0: People gradually buy into the fact that, you know, after all, the whole point of the criminal justice system is to reduce crime, and and if that's what's happening, everybody's doing a good job.
1: This is Rob Wolf, Director of Communications at the Center for Court Innovation in Chicago at Community Justice 2016, uh, where there's a lot going on, a lot of panels talking about justice reform, people from all around the country and even around the world sharing ideas. One of those people with some interesting and cutting-edge ideas is with me right now. His name is Mike Lawler. He is the Chief Criminal Justice Advisor to Connecticut Governor Dan Malloy, And he just participated in a panel on jail reduction and public safety. A lot of interesting things are going on in Connecticut around justice reform, Mike. And I thought maybe you could explain a little bit about what the governor's agenda is, I understand it's something called the Second Chance Society. So, so what's it all about?
0: So, yeah, uh, my boss, Governor Malloy, talks uh, extensively about his uh, goals for what he refers to as a second chance society. And really that covers all of the ground of uh, the, the criminal justice reform initiatives we're seeing around the country. But he also articulates this with clear goals. And goal number one is to reduce crime. Goal number two is to reduce spending, and goal number three is to restore confidence in the criminal justice system. Confidence among victims of crime who often come away thinking they did not get justice. Uh, Confidence among African Americans and Latinos who think the system is just not fair to them. And confidence among all citizens who see every day these examples of wrongful convictions or corruption or, or misconduct by police or prosecutors or probation officers or corrections officers or even judges, sometimes even state legislators and governors from time to time, all of this undermines confidence in the criminal justice system. So restoring people's confidence and at the same time reducing crime is our goal. and And we think... That by making a variety of changes across the board, we will continue to see a reduction in Connecticut's crime rate, which is at its lowest point in 48 years, and we'll see we won't have to spend as much money running prisons, because for the immediate past 20 years or so, we've spent more money running prisons in Connecticut than we have running colleges, which is kind of crazy. And uh, gradually, we can rebuild these relationships, mainly between the criminal justice professionals and the community. and, And... whether you call it community
1: policing or, or something else, you know it's very important to build up that level of trust. Well, those are really ambitious goals. So what are the actual policies that are being proposed to achieve these goals to reduce crime, reduce spending on the criminal justice system, and build confidence in the justice system? Okay,
0: so let's start with what Governor Malloy has actually proposed this year, which is currently being considered by our state's legislature. Um, it has two components. Number one is bail reform. Number two is raising the age of juvenile jurisdiction. So on the bail reform initiative, you know, a number of states, most recently New Jersey, New Mexico, the New York Supreme Court, have acknowledged that bail is a real problem. In other words, people sitting in jail because they can't afford to post what oftentimes are relatively low amounts of bail. Uh, the governor this year has proposed that we not have money bail for people charged only with a misdemeanor. Uh, with an exception for cases involving violence, like, for example, family violence cases are often charged only as misdemeanors, but still there's a very high risk that something bad is going to happen. Uh, and he's asked our state sentencing commission to look at a comprehensive reform and report back next year so that potentially the legislature could enact comprehensive reform, as was the case in New Jersey and New Mexico. Connecticut has a state constitution that guarantees Bail to all offenders, but many states and the federal government have an option for what is known as preventive detention. So, if there is an evidentiary showing that someone actually is a danger to the community, they can be held without bail at all. In Connecticut at the moment, the governor is concerned that the people who really should be locked up pretrial are not. You know, the high risk career criminal gangbanger types because they have frequent flyer points with the bail bondsman and things like that. It's easy for them to get out if they get arrested, even if there's kind of a high bail. On the other hand of the spectrum are the people that don't need to be in jail, but they're sitting there for months on end waiting for their cases to get resolved because they can't come up with, in some cases, a few hundred dollars to get out the door. So that's a big priority for us. And we think over time that will have a big impact on our jail population. But more importantly, what's the
1: actual proposal?
0: So the proposal is no money bail for misdemeanors and uh, allowing uh, all offenders who actually have a money bail that's been set for them to have an option of posting 10% in cash that they would get back at the end of their case if they show up for all their court appearances. And that is the case in many states. In Connecticut, it's actually an option that judges have pursuant to rules of court, but it's not in statute. And we think that by putting it into statute, it'll be used more extensively. Um, also, part of that proposal is that whatever money is accrued, because this this cash will be sitting in a savings account while, while the court process plays out, all of that money that's earned through interest would go to uh, our legal aid operations in the state. So it wouldn't be going to the state, it'd be going to help fund legal assistance for the poor. And any money that is captured because people do not show up in court and we forfeit their money bail, that would also go to legal aid. So we're trying to create a system that has no incentive to have higher bail, just to raise money, and at the same time make it more more of an
1: option to actually get out, especially for people who are poor. And you'll presumably be saving money because fewer people would be held in jail unnecessarily pre-adjudication. Uh, right. Uh, you know, we know uh, about half the people in jail right now in Connecticut
0: because they can't post bail are in there on relatively minor charges. So now, obviously, on a case-by-case basis, there may be very high risk factors involved, but in general, we know there's way too many people being held just because they can't come up with enough money to post bail. And we'd like to get to the point where money bail is just not used at all. If you're really dangerous, prosecutors would have to put on an evidentiary showing, and you could potentially be held as a public safety measure. But the vast majority of cases that really don't meet those criteria would not sit in jail while their cases are pending. And what if someone repeatedly doesn't return to a court date? Well, the proposal we have this year says that even if it's a misdemeanor where no money bail is allowed, if the new misdemeanor is in fact a failure to appear, that would allow for money bail to be set. But we know know, that we've done a lot of deep dives into our data uh, that we have, and the rate at which people fail to appear is actually higher if a bail bondsman has posted bail for them. You know, the, the, you know, we have a very, Connecticut is the only state in the country. And keep in mind, we do not have any county courts. Everything is run by the state. We have no county jails. We have no elected prosecutors. We have no elected judges. So it's a, and, and, and all courts are state courts. So it's, it's easier for us to make changes. But we have the only statewide accredited pretrial services agency in the country. We have, it's run in the judicial branch. It's very well staffed. And and they are very good at sorting out offenders by risk and uh, monitoring defendants in the community with non-financial conditions of release. So we have the infrastructure to really expand this a lot. And to the extent we can save jail bed days, we can save a lot of money and at the same time get better outcomes. Because, you know, all we know for sure is that putting somebody who's really a low-risk, high-needs person in jail, even for a short period of time, you're actually... Increasing the odds that they're going to recidivate once they get out. So we're trying to not do things that make it worse.
1: And it sounds like you have the infrastructure <coughs> in place to do what bail supposedly does, which is to encourage someone to come back to court, but you have uh, non bail, non monetary means to yeah. monitor compliance with that. And so what about uh, what were some of the other. Specific so, so the policy? juvenile.
0: The, so the, I think the more ambitious goal that the governor has for this year is to raise the age of juvenile court jurisdiction from what it is now, 18 up to 21. So if we do it, we'll be the first state in, the, in this country to do it. Other places do it. For example, Germany, which the governor visited uh, last year. You might have seen it on 60 Minutes. They did the piece a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in Germany, if you're under 21 and you get arrested and go to court, the judge makes an immediate decision whether the case will be handled pursuant to juvenile rules or adult rules. And, uh, and apparently, 80 or 90 percent of the cases are dealt with as a juvenile case in effect. So the governor said since we have gotten some very good outcomes with our uh, juvenile justice reforms that date back about 10 years, we've seen a a dramatically reduced number of young people getting arrested. We have a historically low number of juveniles in juvenile detention or in our juvenile prison-like facility that if we're getting these good outcomes by the earlier reforms, maybe we can get those similar outcomes for 18, 19, and 20-year-olds going forward. So we're, we're beginning a process where we'll gradually phase this in. Uh, we're also going to make changes in the way we handle offenders under the age of 25. So we want to have specialized parole and probation supervision for people under 25 so that the officers involved, are, are that's their specialty, dealing with younger people. We're going to have a special correctional facility just for offenders under 25. We already have one for
1: offenders under 21. We want to have another one for the, the, the next age cohort there. And the rationale is because they have different needs and are more amenable to rehabilitation? Exactly. And and on top of that, you know, mixing a, a
0: 21-year-old kid who's got all sorts of problems that have landed him in, in jail with some 40-year-old career criminal guy is probably not a good idea. And I think any person with common sense would understand that that's probably the case. So it's, I don't think it's done by design that all these people are mixed together in our prison system, but, you know, why not change it? You know, we don't have to build a new prison. We just allocate one for the next age cohort and put in staff that specializes with that. You know, all of this um, has been uh, the recent developments in brain, sci- <clears throat> recent developments in brain science uh, has really informed criminal justice policy planners like myself and 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 i think people now for the first time are realizing that you need to have a special approach to younger offenders meaning under 25 and uh if we are successful in getting some of these young people off this trajectory towards uh, career criminal status or you know lengthy terms of incarceration you know we'll need a lot fewer prison beds in this country and So uh, earlier I referred to our juvenile justice reforms that have already taken place in Connecticut. First and foremost, Connecticut was one of three states in the country that used to treat 16-year-olds as adults all the time. So it was Connecticut, New York, and North Carolina. So back in 2007, the legislature voted to increase the jurisdictional age up to 18, but to do it gradually in increments and, and establish a a a very robust planning process to get there. So we spent two years figuring out how to do this. So starting on January 1st, 2010, we went from 16 to 17. And then on July 1st, 2012, went from 17 to 18 and added all of that to the juvenile courts and subtracted all of that from the adult courts. So it would be fair to say, so how'd that turn out, right? And now we know it's 2016. We have all of the data. First of all, people had predicted when we did this the juvenile courts would be overwhelmed with new cases, um, and uh, actually, today there are fewer cases coming into the juvenile court than there were, be- were before because there's a lot fewer younger people getting into trouble that lead them in court and in- lead them to court in the first place. Uh, second, we know that we have an all-time low number of kids in juvenile detention, and that has to do with a lot of different policy changes, not just raising the age. But don't forget, it used to be that. On your 16th birthday, you were automatically an adults. So you never could be in juvenile detention. Now we've added all 16- and 17-year-olds, and even with that, we've got a historic low. We have three juvenile detention facilities in our state. One of the three has closed, and the other two are about one-third full, and we're probably going to close one of those two shortly. We're closing yeah. our 150-bed juvenile prison-like facility altogether. We're just going to close it. It's down to 40 kids right now. And, and, and so all of this has to do with fewer younger people getting into trouble and getting arrested and ending up in court and ultimately incarcerated. And uh, we see that this this effect is playing out now for already 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23 years. It's like a trough moving through the arrest statistics. And like, for example, 17-year-olds, the last year we have complete data for is 2014 uh, there was sixty percent six zero sixty percent fewer arrests of seventeen year olds statewide in two thousand and fourteen than there were in two thousand and eight and it 's dropped in equal increments every single year and in the adult system, we're, we measure the number of kids in jail eighteen to twenty one years old were actually incarcerated on a particular day, and that number has dropped from two thousand sixty two on January first two thousand and eight down to 960
1: on January 1st, 2016. Oh, you know the numbers uh, right off the top of your head, huh, don't you? I do. These you are re- important numbers. You recite but them a lot. But the re- lowering the age, it sounds like it's easier to do because the population is smaller, but easier. it didn't create fewer arrests. There are other factors right, that must be fueled definitely. that. Right, so, definitely.
0: So it's the, the, the raising the age, actually, up to – we went up to 18, now we're proposing to go to 21 – so juvenile court works differently and has a different sort of triage mechanism for new cases coming in. You know, not everybody ends up in front of a judge and don't have all the formal proceedings with mandatory court dates, etc., you know, which kind of sets up people for failure. You know, you get charged with failure to appear if you don't show up on time and, you know, go to your probation officers. You know, I mean, there's a lot of shoots uh, and ladders that kind of get you into trouble. So the juvenile system is much less formal much focused on needs assessment and hooking people up with appropriate interventions, without an overlay of, let's say, court appearances, a guilty plea, a probation officer. And, and so we are convinced that approaching younger people differently will get you better outcomes. And, and the reason I'm citing these statistics is, 10 years ago when we first started talking about this stuff, people said, if you make these changes, you'll get these outcomes. So here we are, fast forward 10 years, we're getting those outcomes. Now maybe it's a complete coincidence, but I don't think so. You know, you know, other examples of changes have been in, in school systems themselves. We know now that there's a very high correlation between suspensions and expulsions, even in younger grades, and, and ending up in prison down the road. There's an extensive study in uh, the state of Texas, which actually has very good data, going back a long time, for every single kid in their public school system. And, they, and that's clearly shown that schools with the exact same type of kids and type of issues which tend to suspend and expel a lot of kids versus schools which are very similar but su- suspend very few kids. It's the, the, the high suspension schools that end up with the high incarceration rate down the road. And So there's something about uh, not ostracizing, jettisoning younger people, but trying to deal with their issues up front that means that they'll be much less likely to end up in the criminal justice system down the road. So it's this kind of thinking which is really a complete rethinking of schools, justice, service provision, everything else that that, uh, gets us to where we are today and and sustains the momentum we hope to continue for the next few years. But the goal at the end of the day is reducing crimes. If crime is going down, that's good. If crime is going up,
1: something is wrong. And you said this you thought was the the bigger task, the more challenging component to implement of the second-chance society, the raising the age, is this requiring uh, you have to persuade the legislature are they on board well it's a lot easier to
0: talk to legislators and ordinary citizens even journalists editorial boards about why we think this would be successful because we can cite the success of earlier similar initiatives and the process that the governor recommended is gradual and incremental with a lot of planning built into the front end and and it's really more about reallocating resources because everything you add to the juvenile system you subtract from the adult system so we think it's very workable but people you know appropriately are apprehensive skeptical because it's new it's a completely different uh approach to this and you know it's worth noting that we are making provisions to you know wouldn't be 100 percent of the people under 21 go to juvenile court obviously Murders and very serious crimes, very high-risk kinds of kids. You know, there would be an option with discretion, informed by specific standards or findings that need to be made to to deal with a case in adult court. So it's not one-size-fits-all at all. It's very focused on risk assessment, needs assessment, with the stated goal up front of reducing crime, reducing recidivism among kids who are actually coming into court. You know, we think, based on our experience, that just talking about these things as the actual goals and talking about the fact that we now have the capability to measure all this data, make it very transparent so everybody can see what's going on, that affects behavior of everyone on the front lines, the cops, the prosecutors, probation, parole, corrections, everybody, because they know what the goal is. They know that you're able to figure this stuff out, and and I think people gradually buy into the fact that, you know, after all, the whole point of the criminal justice system one would think, is to reduce crime. And and if that's what's happening, everybody's doing a
1: good job. Well, thanks for explaining all that, and good luck with all your exciting stuff going on in Connecticut. Thank you. I've been speaking with Mike Lawler, who is Connecticut Governor Dan Malloy's chief of criminal justice, well, the chief advisor to the governor, right? Policy stuff. Um, Your exact title is Undersecretary, Criminal Justice Policy and Planning Division. That's the job. I'm a bureaucrat. (laughs) <laughs> well we need we need bureaucrats to get there you things go. done, right? Um I'm Rob Wolf, Director of Communications at the Center for Court Innovation, and uh Mike and I have been speaking um outside uh of the rooms where Community Justice twenty sixteen is occurring here at the Hilton in Chicago, uh, where for two and a half days, people from uh, around the country and uh, even a few visitors internationally have been discussing justice reform. To find out more about uh, the Center for Court Innovation and about justice reform and about community justice, visit our website, www.courtinnovation.org. Thanks for listening.